Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School Fall 2019. We are so glad that each of you are here this morning with us at Colleyville Prez. We are going to be continuing a series that we began um, last spring. Um, uh, we began last spring, uh, probably in March or April or so, um, looking at the Epistle of James. Um, the Epistle of James is, um, well, before I do that, I just want to say, it is, it is such a pleasure for me to, I, there's probably nothing I, well, I shouldn't say nothing, but it's hard to think of things that I enjoy more than just studying the Bible with other believers and being able to get into the scriptures with one another in a detailed and, and careful way. Um, this, what a great blessing it is to be able to do this with one another. Um, uh, we began this class um, last spring um, looking at the Epistle of James. We made it up to about uh, James, uh, halfway through James 3. And, and today we'll be picking up right where we left off at the end of last May and continuing on um, uh, the, the next five weeks, we hope to cover the remainder of the Epistle of James, which of course is five um, chapters long. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, perhaps you have a device that has a Bible, that'd be fine. Um, there are also um, hardcover Bibles in the back of our sanctuary on the cabinet back there stacked up. You can grab one of those if you need one. But I would encourage you to have some access to the scriptural text this morning as we study it together. So before we jump right into 3.13, which is this really interesting passage, 13 through 18, about the nature of true wisdom, according to James, according to the scriptures, um, I just want to do a little bit of um, overview and, and sort of review from um, things that we covered um, last uh, semester so that we can all be on the same page as we enter into this text together. And so I just want to take a look at James chapter 1, uh, verse 1, because that chapter and verse really gives us a great deal of um, insight into um, the, the background and the context for the book. And so let's look at that together. Um, James begins this way, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. A couple things about that. James here identifies himself, gives his name, and we've talked about um, sort of candidates for who might be um, the author of this epistle. Um, anybody remember who those candidates were that we talked about? Uh, there were three basic ones. James, the brother of Jesus, is the certainly one. And then who else? There are two apostles named James, right? Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the brother of John. And I think really all three of these men are candidates for writing this epistle. Any, any of the three of them could have written it. Um, it's my personal belief that it's most likely that it was James, the brother of John. Um, given his access um, to Jesus during his ministry, he was one of the inner circle with John and Peter. Um, and, uh, and given his, his, the early role of the apostles themselves in leading and directing the church, um, before someone like James, the brother of Jesus, who was not an apostle, certainly an important leader by the time we get to Acts 15. Um, but it, it's my belief that James was written early, and so most likely it was James, the apostle, the brother of John, who wrote this epistle. Um, I would say nothing fundamentally hinges on you adopting that view or James, the brother, or James, the brother of Jesus' view. Um, I think either one works, um, but that's my personal conviction. Um, the, the second thing here, he says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And I think this actually gives us a lot of clues about the context of the letter of James. Um, we talked last year about that word dispersion. Um, that is the, the noun form of a word that is of a verb that is used. 
um, twice in the book of Acts. Um, it is used first in Acts 9, um, where, or Acts 8 rather, um, after the death of Stephen, um, we read um, that the Christians were then dispersed by the persecution of the Jews. Remember that? Stephen dies at the end of Acts 7. Um, the, Luke tells us, on that day a great persecution arose in Jerusalem. Um, that the, the Jewish leaders at that point, they killed Stephen. Um, no lightning bolt came down from heaven, right? Um, no angel train came down and destroyed them for, for killing this man. And so they basically said, you know what? We can do whatever we want to these Christians. And so they began to do that. They began to persecute them heavily uh, with violence, with taking away their property. And so the Christians in Jerusalem, many of them to save their lives and their, and their uh, families, left. They were dispersed is the, the Greek word that was used there uh, from Jerusalem. Um, that word then comes back again in Acts 11, um, where Paul is going on some journeys and he finds that, that Christians have been dispersed as far as Antioch um, and other cities. Um, that the Christians who were dispersed um, uh, had, had gone out all throughout the, um, the Mediterranean world. And, and Acts tells us that as they went, they were talking about Jesus. They were preaching the gospel. They were beginning to set up, in effect, little Christian communities in the places to where they went. Now, what was the, the generally speaking, the ethnic composition of the Christians at this time, the first you know, several years um, after uh, resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost? Who were these people? They were Jews, right? They were Jewish in ethnicity almost entirely. Um, and that is really interesting because what is one of the, the, the biggest issues that many of the New Testament epistles um, discuss and, and wrestle with again and again regarding ethnicity? How two groups of people relate to one another, right? Jews and Gentiles, right? Do you know what, what issue is absolutely absent from the book of James? Not mentioned once, not even alluded to? Conflict between Jews and Gentiles, or how do you reconcile them and have them live all in the same community, right? Which is really interesting. It's a very distinctive thing about the book of James, actually, that it doesn't have that concern as it's being written. Instead, James says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which I think most likely means that uh, James, the brother of John, um, serving as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, is, is living in Jerusalem and sending a circular letter out to the 12 tribes, to the new Israel, the Israel that has been reconstituted in the person of Jesus Christ and through his apostles and their teaching, uh, that have been dispersed um, from Jerusalem out around in the Mediterranean world. He's writing them and he is giving them wisdom. Um, he's pointing them back in many ways to the teachings of Jesus himself about what it means to live a faithful life in the midst of the suffering and the persecution that they are experiencing. If you look at the book of James, one... one um, um, you know, emphasis you will see all throughout is the, is the emphasis of suffering um, and difficulty. And this also fits with a very early date for the book of James. I, I mean, my personal conviction is that James was probably written um, the first, um, you know, five years or so, most likely, um, after um, Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. Um, that, that James is written early. I don't see any reason why that couldn't be the case. I know in much modern scholarship there's a bias against things being written quickly, um, but that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, the men who were apostles were Jews. And you know what Jews grew up doing um, as part of their religious practice um, their entire lives? Reading authoritative texts, right? Written um, by the, you know, inspired by the Spirit and given to the people of God. 
Um, if, if you were a Jewish apostle, if you really believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he had died and been raised from the dead, um, and that this was the good news that would transform the world, is not the first thing you would do. Write it down, right? You would start to write it down. And so I think it's very likely um, that, uh, for example, Matthew was a very early gospel written um, primarily as a, as, a, as a way to convince um, Jewish uh, people that Jesus was in fact the Messiah of Israel. Um, you see, of course, in Matthew so many connections with the Old Testament, so many ways in which Jesus is portrayed as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And I think it's very likely that James, uh, before his death, he was killed, of course, by Peter in Acts 12. We read about that. I'm, I'm sorry, by Peter, by Herod in Acts 12. Um, uh, Peter was imprisoned at the same time. I think it's very likely that James wrote this epistle before um, uh, he, was, he was martyred um, there. Uh, James is likely the first apostle, actually, that was martyred, the first recorded apostle that was martyred. Here's the thesis verse of James, or verses. James 2 to 4, he says, this is how he starts his epistle. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, or the word there is telos, mature and complete, lacking in nothing, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in and nothing. This really is the thesis statement summary of James's basic message, um, that when we meet trials of various kinds in our lives, we are to count it as joy, because we know that our faith is being tested, and the testing of our faith as we remain steadfast and joyful will produce steadfastness, and steadfastness over time will make us mature, will make us into the image even of Jesus Christ, lacking in nothing. It's a deeply Christian way to view suffering. And it's deeply Christian because it is, it is dependent upon Jesus' own interpretation of his suffering and of his life. Right? The apostles are thinking back to the way we're going to look at that this morning in our sermon. Jesus talked about suffering, right? He said, what does it mean for me to be the Christ? What well, means I must suffer and be rejected and killed by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And if you are going to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross, right? And you must, you must hate your life so that you will find it. Um, Jesus, um, um, though he certainly builds on the Old Testament, yet he fulfills the Old Testament and introduces this, this fundamentally, in some ways, new way of thinking about the, the reason for suffering, why suffering comes into our lives, and ultimately is about uh, being transfigured, being made mature, uh, being made complete and perfect and lacking in nothing. And that, of course, is the image that we see with Jesus. Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And after being made mature or perfect, it's the same word that James uses here, then he was designated as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus himself learned maturity um, through obedience in the midst of suffering. And James is essentially arguing this also is the pathway for your life. This is what it's going to look like for you. Um, wisdom, of course, is a, is a huge theme in James, and we're going to see that even today. Um, and and um, it's interesting, um, James talks about the way in which we learn wisdom is through this process. This process is actually how we learn wisdom. Any, any questions so far? Any, any comments before we jump into the text this morning that we have to cover? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> it's really interesting. If you read conservative evangelical scholars um, about James in their introductions to their commentaries, um, they almost almost all <clears throat> land on James, the, the brother of Jesus, as the apostle, or who wrote it, or not the apostle, but as the author of the epistle. Um, they reject James, the son of Alphaeus, because um, he is not mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament after the Gospels, um, and so they don't feel like he is a prominent enough person to have written, which I'm not sure that makes sense. He was an apostle, but in any case. Um, and then they, they consider briefly, very briefly, for a sentence or two, uh, James, the brother of John. Um, but then they reject him because they all say, well, he died around probably, we think, you know, 40 or so. Um, that's the timeline, basically. Um, and, and as such, he's t he died too early to have been the writer of this epistle. Um, so it's this sort of logical argument that precludes the, the option of James being written between 30 and 40, but without any evidence being offered. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm misrepresenting the, the argument. They're, if you read conservative evangelical scholars, they just assume a later date um, without giving any evidence, and they reject James, the brother of John, as the author because of that fundamental assumption. Um, and, I, and I don't know how to account for that. Most, most of, to answer your question, most conservative scholars would say that James was written sometime in the 50s, probably. Many people think it was early. Um, <clears throat> maybe the 40s, maybe the mid-40s, yeah. Do you think James, the brother John, is the I think the reason is, if we take the, the second half of that first verse seriously, and I think if we see the connections with the book of Acts, I think, it, I think it, it, it points to this letter being written for that initial context of Jews, Jewish Christians who are being dispersed from Jerusalem. And at that point, it was, there's no question that it was the apostles and the apostles who were alone, really, who were leading and directing the church. And because James, the brother of Jesus, we know was not an apostle, um, he became a disciple um, at some point in his life, either before Jesus' death or after, um, and of course rose to prominence in the church. We see his role in Acts 15 um, as a leader of the church. Um, but in my view, it's probably too, if we, if we think James is early, it's probably too early for James, the brother of Jesus, to have written it. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, Scott. I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head. I could look into it, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, yeah, I think, I think, I do think one of the textual reasons for, for thinking about an early date for James is that absence of the Jewish-Gentile conflict. And even, there are all sorts of hints throughout the book that, that the way in which um, he is he's working with Old Testament motifs um, again and again, um, allusions, not quotations. Um, there's a lot of evidence that James is writing to people, to a group that he feels confident are all very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, um, a, very, a very Jewish audience, I think. Yeah. 
Right, that's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, what Eric said, in case you can hear him, was James alludes to the words, actual words of Jesus again and again, which it certainly does, and we'll see some of that. Um, and, and that speaks to someone who was part of Jesus' inner circle, which is James, the brother of John, was that. Um, he was part of that inner three um, that, that witnessed um, all of the important life, events in the life of Jesus and uh, was present um, for all of his teaching. And that's, yeah, that's an important factor as well. Yes, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the question, right? So Sarah's asking, um, what if, what if um, is, there's not a mention of the Jewish-Gentile divisions that you see in other epistles, um, but is that because there wasn't that division at the time, or is it because he just wanted to address other things? And that's certainly a possibility. I don't, I don't trust me, you don't, you don't have to buy into my theory for um, the apostle, you know, the, the context and the authorship of James to, to really glean what's here in this epistle. It's not necessary, and that certainly is an option. This epistle certainly could have been written by James, the brother of Jesus, in the, the 50s AD, and he, like you said, he, maybe he just chose not to address um, the Jewish-Gentile um, divisions. Um, in my reading, I think that would be unusual, um, given how um, important those, those divisions were um, in the early church, um, in that first generation of Christians, working out um, those, what it meant to be one in Christ, and for those ethnic distinctions not to be fundamental for people. Yes, yes, particularly for James, the brother of Jesus. That's true. Yeah, he would have wanted, yeah, because you, and you see that's exactly what Acts 15 is about. That's a great point. Todd just pointed out um, the, the letter that we do have that James, the brother of Jesus, is said to have at least been a part of the writing of is um, the, you know, when Acts 15 was all about the conflict between Jews and Gentiles, and James was part of the group that, that wrote the circular letter that said, here are the ways in which Jews and Gentile Christians should live together, right? That circumcision's not required, you know, don't eat the blood of animals, those kinds of things. Um, that's a great point, actually. Yeah, I think that's probably more of a feature of the maybe the Jerusalem church in some way. I mean, certainly if you, as you read the epistles of Paul, you see a lot of um, trouble between, you know, think about Galatians, think about uh, parts of Romans, those kinds of things, Corinthians, um, that there are, there are, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, certainly in terms of the, the, that centralized church in Jerusalem, it seems to be almost exclusively Jewish at that time. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's, um, let's jump into... The text this morning, James 3, chapter 13. I'm going to read all of this, and then we will work through it very closely. Remember that James, uh, just to remember the context, um, chapter 2, James has dealt with the sin of partiality, um, 
what do you, how do you treat the rich and poor differently when they come into your worship service? What does that reveal about your heart before God? Uh, the remainder of James 2 is about the relationship between faith and works, that um, if your faith is genuine, it will be shown by your works, by your obedience before God, right? Not, and it's important to think about that. But there James is, when he says works, he's not talking about, you know, amazing superhuman acts of, of piety. He's talking about obedience um, to God. That's what he means by works. Your faith will manifest itself in obedience to God. Um, and then James 3, um, this is important actually for our, our passage this morning. He starts by this by saying, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Um, that teachers in the church, those who have authority in the church, pastors, elders, others, um, will be judged um, with a greater strictness. Um, and I think James is primarily here talking about people who teach the scriptures publicly, preach and teach especially. Um, and then he moves into this, this um, talking about the tongue and the danger of the tongue and how hard it is to control the tongue. And if you control the tongue, you are a perfect man, a mature man. Um, and then he, he moves and then into 13, that's the transition, right? Um, he talks in, 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 in 10 through 12, he talks about the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things not, ought not to be so. Um, can a spring for, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So this need for integrity in our speech, um, for uh, the way I mean, we can't bless God on one hand and curse our brothers on the other. So then he moves in 13 through 18 to a discussion of wisdom. and we, I think we can easily see the connection between speech and leadership in the church and the need for wisdom, and that's what James is talking about here. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you've heard the whole of that section. Let's now move through it verse by verse. Who is wise and understanding among you, James asks. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What's interesting about that definition? James asks this question, who is wise and understanding? And then he show, says, this is, this is the test for wisdom and understanding. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What is interesting about that definition of, of what it means to be wise and understanding? Jeremy.
Yes, to be wise understanding, according to James, is not have many, you know, mahogany-bound books and your leather-bound books and your, uh, you know, wonderful bookcases, right? Um, that, that's, not, that's not true wisdom. It's something else. Or to have a lot of letters after your name. That's not uh, true wisdom. Yes, Eric. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, there is. I think it's really interesting that James here defines wisdom and understanding as someone as something that is revealed by good conduct um, in your works, in your obedience, in your faithfulness, in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness of wisdom. That's a really interesting phrase. What does that What does that make you think of? Humility. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all about humility. Remember that the first part of James uh, 3, he says, not, not many of you should want to be teachers, brothers, or become teachers. We know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's the context for which James is writing this. I think he's writing this about uh, leadership in the church. And he's saying, if you want to be a leader in the church, you will, by your good conduct, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. I think it's worth reflecting on how that is, I think, unquestionably, when we think about it, a good standard for wisdom and maturity and leadership, right? The meekness of wisdom, good conduct that's shown forth in your life. But it's often not the thing that we rush towards and we think about who we're going to entrust ourselves to to give authority and, and, and be given authority and leadership in the church, right? I mean, is that a fair thing to say? Often people who have leadership in the church are people who are what? Gifted, right? Charismatic, right? Have the right kind of personality. Maybe you're type A people, right? Um, are funny, are attractive, but none of that is here in this definition of, of who has wisdom and understanding, who is qualified to be a teacher in the church. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In the meekness of wisdom. Yes. <laughs> That's right. He wasn't attractive, right? <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. I just think it's worth interest. It's interesting to think about that, right? As you think about not only what it means for you to be wise in your own life, but also who is it that you're listening to, right? Who is it that you're giving authority in your life spiritually? Um, are these people who are showing um, in their conduct, in their good conduct, showing their works in the meekness of wisdom? Or are they just people who are really smart and articulate? Because if that's all they are, then they're not people who should have authority in your life spiritually, right? Because they don't really have wisdom. Wisdom is something that is connected to meekness and humility and being proven over time, having a track record, right? Um, good conduct, faithfulness, showing their works. I think that's really interesting. It's funny how we use that phrase, right? When, when, you're, when you're doing a, a problem in... Uh, in math, right, you, you have to show your work, right? 
you have to prove that you've you've done it. <laughs> you didn't you didn't cheat. You didn't uh, you know just sort of uh, use some kind of shortcut that's not going to work next time. You have to show your work, and I think that's a great image for the Christian life, right? That we don't take shortcuts. We have to show our work. You know, we have to show um, how we're going from point A to point B as we grow, and it's and it's and it's that's true for your own life as you're tested in wisdom as you grow in wisdom, but I think it's also true for those whom we entrust ourselves to. And, and make no doubt about it, it is impossible to live as a Christian uh, without entrusting yourself to the authority of someone else, to other Christians, right? Um, and, and who you entrust yourself to over, this, over the course of your life will be one of the largest decisions that you make as a Christian, right? Who's teaching you listen to? Who is influential as you understand the scriptures and what Jesus is like? Um, it's a really fundamental question. It's one we should consider carefully. Then verse 14, James says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So there's a contrast there, right? There's the meekness of wisdom, and then there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's the contrast. Do not boast, be false to the truth, right? Don't put yourself in a place where you are influencing others, if this is who you are. Don't allow people who, who are driven by these things, by jealousy and ambition, um, to exercise authority in your life. What does that phrase remind you of, that pairing? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Think about some biblical stories, right? What's that? Joseph, yeah, that's a great example, right? Joseph and his brothers, right? Um, Joseph's brothers were obviously uh, driven um, by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, right? And Joseph kept having these annoying dreams where he kept coming up on top, yeah? You know, little bro thinks that he's going to be uh, the one to get ahead of everybody else. And so what do the older brothers think of that? Um, they are not pleased by this development, right, by this prediction, um, they have an ambition for themselves, and they have jealousy of the way in which Joseph seems to be the special one, right? That he, got the, he got the nice robe. They know that their father um, loved Rachel more than their mothers, and, and Joseph gets all this special treatment. And, and no doubt, that's a tough situation, right? I mean, part of this is, you know, Jacob's um, own decisions, life decisions that created some of this rivalry between his sons. Um, but what what... Were Joseph's brothers meek in wisdom? No, right? They were driven by jealousy and, and selfish ambition. Yeah, Carrie. Sure, he grew in, he grew in his humility, and, and he grew in his humility by, in some ways, being sold into slavery by his brothers, right? Um, and having to serve in the house of Potiphar um, and being falsely accused, and it's almost like someone else's story. Um, yes, sir, Eric. Yeah, Saul's a great example, right? Um, he, he saw David's star rising, um, David killing Goliath, and immediately, I mean, if you read um, 1 Samuel there, right, in the story of David and Goliath, um, almost immediately after the death of Goliath, David does this amazing thing. You think Saul would be super proud and excited that, um, you know, they just won this great battle over the Philistines. They weren't really sure they were going to win, and they won. Good news. But Im almost immediately, Saul is jealous, 
He's jealous of the people singing about David and his exploits and his deeds. And that jealousy leads him down a very dark path. Just, I mean, it leads to violence, just like it did for Joseph's brothers. I think about Cain and Abel, right? Um, um, Abel, a sacrifice is accepted. Um, Cain feels displaced. He's driven um, by that selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And he destroys, literally destroys his brother um, because of it. Let's, let's be honest, this is like not just stuff that happened in the Old Testament to, you know, unspiritual people. This is our lives, right? Every one of us are going to be constantly being countered by people who seem to have it better than we do, right? Whom God, I mean, we can debate about really whether they really have it better. I think, you know, that's a more complicated question. But they're going to seem to have it better than we do, right? God is going to seem to love them more. They're going to seem to have more things, more advancement, more happiness in their marriage, more, you know, whatever it might be, whatever that thing is, right? They're the ones going up front and getting the award. They're getting promoted. They're smarter. Things seem to come easier. And how do we respond to that, right? I mean, that is one of the great spiritual tests of our lives. How do we respond when others do better than we do? Because you know what? is the the natural tendency of human beings jealousy and ambition and you know where that leads violence you want to kill them ultimately right if you let it go if you let it continue maybe i mean probably you're not going to kill them let's be honest but you're going to want to and jesus says you know it's similar um and I, I, think, I think we have to be reckoned with this. This is the dark side of human beings, and we all have it, right? We've all had moments in our lives when other people seem to be getting everything that we want, and we want to destroy them. We want them to disappear, to not exist, because that would make us somehow feel better, which is absolutely crazy, right? It's not going to make you feel better. <laughs> it didn't make Joseph's brothers feel better. It didn't make Cain feel better. It didn't make Saul feel better, right? You know, a happy, successful life was not Saul's, after he got rid of David and chased him around the wilderness, right? You know, the opposite, actually. Um, but it, it, it is interesting to think about that, right? The, the siren call of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I think we all have to be honest about the fact that this is something that we must reckon with ourselves. Where does this wisdom, wisdom, quote-unquote, this false wisdom come from? It is earthly, James says. It is unspiritual. It is demonic. Why does he choose those three adjectives to describe this false wisdom of jealousy and selfish ambition. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly, right? It's, it, this is the natural human thing. I think he's pointing back to all those stories. What does it mean for something to be unspiritual? It doesn't just mean secular. Not of God, right? Remember, whenever you see spiritual in the New Testament, you have to, you have to, Discipline yourself to think Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, right? Spiritual is used in such a crazy generic way in our culture, it means almost nothing. But in the New Testament, whenever they were saying spiritual, they were talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, right? The third person of the triune God. It is not of the Holy Spirit. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? Is the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the sort of prominent um, upfront actor throughout the scriptures? No, he's not, right? Jesus tells us the whole point of the Holy Spirit is to direct us to Christ, right? To lead us into truth, to show us Him. 
And the Holy Spirit embraces that role. Right? It's, it's a humble role. And really, that is the life of the triune God, right? The life of the triune God is the Father loving the Son, the Son um, um, loving the Father, the Spirit, um, returning that love back to one another. The whole, the whole life of the Trinity um, is a life of, of self-giving, right, and, and honoring one another, um, the opposite of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So this wisdom is unspiritual in that sense. It is also demonic. Why is it demonic? What did Satan have when he was created? He had authority, the presence of God, right? We don't know all the stories. I mean, there are apocryphal stories about exactly what motivated Satan's fall, his rebellion. But we know that when Satan was created, he was created as an angelic being. He had a prominent role in creation. But you know what I think? began to tickle Satan's ears was the Lord's creation of the human race, right? Adam and Eve. And perhaps somehow in the divine counsel and the way that was spread among the angels, um, Satan began to understand that, that the Lord had plans for these, right, these fleshly beings, right, with their bodies, that one day they would be placed over the angels. That right now the angels had a role with humanity where, you know, they were messengers of God and um, in some ways, mediators between God and man, um, but that one day, humanity would rise, right? That's what Hebrews 2 says, right? For a little while, Jesus um, was under the angels, but now has been placed above um, and has taken humanity with him. So I, I think it's very likely that the fall of Satan was driven by jealousy. It was driven by jealousy um, over what the Lord was doing um, with these human creatures, um, and, and that is how the New Testament talks about our relationship to angels today, right? In Christ, we reign over all things, including the angelic beings, which is a really fascinating thing to think about. But I think that's why this is called demonic. And of course, this is the same logic that Satan, remember Satan is the one that tempts um, Eve in the garden um, to want to be like God, to not trust him, to be driven by jealousy, ambition. He's the one who tempts uh, Cain um, when he is appears to be rejected by God, right? And this, this is the way of Satan. Satan is driven by this logic, this logic of, of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And when we give in to this false wisdom, we are acting in a demonic way. Doesn't mean we're possessed by a demon, but we're, we're acting according to demonic logic, satanic logic, we can say, which is something we really need to wrestle with, right? And we see these dark places in our hearts when we're driven by this kind of jealousy and ambition. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Right? This is the end. And we see this in all the stories we've talked about. The life of Saul, um, Joseph and his brothers, Cain and Abel. Um, all these situations. Um, <laughs> you know what is driving the persecution of the Jews, uh, or of the Christians by the Jews, all through Acts? It is jealousy. If you read of Acts 17, you'll see that Paul goes to Thessalonica. He begins to preach in the synagogue about Jesus being the Messiah. People begin to trust in him. And then the Jews became jealous, we're told. And because they were jealous, they stirred up a mob. They went to Jason's house. They dragged him out. They chased off Paul. They instigated violence against them. It's jealousy. It's, always, it's almost always jealousy, really, that drives us to violence. Someone has something we want, and we're going to take it. 
because it should be ours, right? And that leads to disorder in every vile practice. Any kind of thing becomes acceptable when we're driven by jealousy because we deserve that thing we don't have and we'll do whatever it takes to get it. But the wisdom from above, again, that contrast, James loops back around, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is shown is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's striking about this list? The nature of true wisdom. These are all different ways of talking about the meekness of wisdom, right? Gentleness, peaceable, pure, meaning godly, right? It's the pure in heart who will see God. Open to reason. Someone who is actually wise will listen to other people. That's kind of a fascinating thing, right? Often we're, we're said, if you're wise, you're the smartest person in the room, and you, why should you listen to anyone, right? Because <laughs> you've got it. The, the scripture says, if you are a wise and understanding person, you will be open to reason, open to listening to others, other perspectives. You'll be peaceable, you'll be gentle, you'll be full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, looping back to chapter 2, right? You're going to treat people equally, not based on what they can do for you. Sincere. That's a fascinating aspect of true wisdom and understanding, right? Sincerity. We know people who are sincere. And we know people who are insincere. And we can instinctively tell the difference, can't we? Right? You can sense when people's put, people are putting on a front when they're being um, something other than actual, their actual selves. I think that's a really fascinating um, uh, aspect of what James considers true wisdom and understanding. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I think James is really encouraging these Christians to be very careful about who they put in leadership in their communities because particularly of the situation they're in, right? They're in a situation where there's great anxiety, where there's great fear, where it appears as though they're losing every battle in the culture around them. And he's saying, if you put leaders in who are driven by jealousy and ambition, there will be disorder and vile practice. There will be violence, actually, as we're going to see in chapter 4. But leaders who are truly wise and understanding, who are open to reason, who are careful, who are humble, who are gentle, who are merciful, they're going to be the leaders who will help you be steadfast and endure and wait for the deliverance of God rather than trying to manufacture it themselves. And in this way, you are going to endure and be made mature as individuals, as a community. And this is our world today, right? We're living in a post-Christian culture. We're living in a place where it becomes harder and harder um, to be a true believer. It's anxious, right? There's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of fear. And the question here, I think this is a good this is really fascinating for us to think about for ourselves and our own lives and also who do we entrust ourselves to? 
those who are driven by selfish ambition and jealousy or those who are wise and understanding, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And do we trust that this way will actually lead to life, right? The light, the way, the, not the way of anxiety, but the way of patience. As we sow peace, we will reap peace, right? Shalom, the fullness and goodness of God and his kingdom. That's what we want. All right, let's stand and pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way in which James gives us wisdom, um, imparts wisdom to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to reflect on these things and consider them carefully. Uh, Lord, help us to be those who are wise and understanding. Help us to be those who put off bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. For we know that is the way of Satan, that is the way of the earth, uh, that is the way of those who are opposed to your spirit. Father, let us be like your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to be conformed to his image. Make us into those who have the fruit of the Spirit, who are peaceable and pure and gentle and patient, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, that we might indeed receive the harvest of peace in our lives and in our communities. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.